Good morning. I was a little overamped after the first service, so I went and sat quietly by myself in my office upstairs, and I had to come down and join you. I normally try to be down here, but you were lifting the floor beneath my feet anyway, so just decided to come in and join the singing. Thank you so much for coming with, uh, obviously, hearts prepared to worship. We're What we're doing here is very ordinary and very human in a sense. It's just us. Nobody particularly special here, certainly not the guy who's talking to you. And at the same time, what we're doing is extraordinary. This book that I hold in my hands is a Bible. It was written in three languages across some 1,400 years. We can't be certain of how many authors because so many of them are anonymous, but we have historical sources to give us very, very good estimations of authorship. So probably about 40 people wrote across 1,400 years in three different languages, and yet it tells a cohesive story. It tells the story of Jesus. As I tried to show you in Christmas time. 700 and even a thousand years before Jesus was born, his life is spelled out in detail. The place and the time of his birth, the exact price of his betrayal, the details of his crucifixion, even though at the time when Psalm 22 was written, which gives such a graphic portrait of the crucifixion, crucifixion, that cruel way of executing people, had not even yet been invented. Every word pointing forward to Jesus and every word telling you about a God who loves you, who is holy and just and righteous and good, and at the same time, in an equal measure, merciful and loving, who made you to love you and so that you would love Him back and enjoy you and you enjoy Him forever. That's the promise of Scripture. And last week, we began a new series in the Psalms. One of my resolutions as senior pastor who does a, not all but a good deal of the teaching here on Sunday mornings, so I want to preach to you more clearly and more practically in this new year. I want you to understand as we move across Scripture, and we'll have at least three interweaving series, because none of our attention spans is what it used to be, and more on that in a minute. I want you to understand what the Psalms are. The Psalms are the songs of God's people. There's 150 of them. They were written across some 900 years of Israel's journey with God. They're arranged in five books. Maybe you haven't noticed. But there are divisions within the Psalms, book one, book two, and so forth. Every book ending with a doxology, in other words, with a praise, a a word of praise to God before the theme changes. And because they are songs, they have every emotion, mood, and piece of human experience that any human being could ever go through. Last week, as a preview, and knowing how hard the time after Christmas is for so many of us, I took you to Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is an accusatory scream to God. David, whom wrote by the titles of the Psalms, 73 of them, and the New Testament tells us he wrote two more. In other words, fully half the Psalms are David's. Screams out to God in what I affectionately have thought of as lucky Psalm 13. How long? 
And he accuses God through a question of forgetting him, and what's worse than forgetting, of God actually deliberately hiding from him. And that's the nature of the Psalms. Just this morning, because I don't pay that much attention, and I'm not that good of an adult son, I read a message my mother sent me on Thursday. <laughs> if you were here last week, I want, I'll remind you that I told you that Psalm 13 became important to our family when my mother was very, very ill and in chronic pain. And it was Psalm 13, which God had recently shown to me as an 18-year-old kid, that gave me comfort and gave her perspective. Well, on Thursday, and again, her ne'er-do-well son just read it on Sunday morning, my mom wrote this, I just wanted you to know that I listened to your New Year's message. It's funny you preached on that passage and used my headache experience as an example. It was in one of those awful hospital stays after I came to and felt better that I actually memorized that whole psalm. It was so real to me then. It was my prayer many, many dark, endless days and nights. How long? But verses 5 and 6 filled me with hope. I would cling to that psalm so many times. Actually, that very hospital stay, I was able to lead a nurse to the Lord on a Sunday morning that I had asked God why I couldn't be well and be in church. All things work together for good. Your message brought back lots of memories, but it was a blessing. That's what the Psalms do. That's what the Word of God does. That's why it matters. And several years ago, we opened up to the Psalm we're looking at this morning. Even though I've shared it with you before, it's important that if we're going to go into the Psalms, we won't touch every one of them. I'll just give you a sampling in the next several weeks of the kinds of things that you can find there and hopefully teach you to study them. If we're going to be in the Psalms, we have to begin with Psalm 1. Look with me, please, in your Bibles in Psalm 1. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there should be one near you. In the seats. And Psalms is the center of the Bible, right in the middle of the book. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 reads, frankly, more like a proverb. In other words, much like Proverbs does, and much of the Bible does this, it invites you to consider two different people living their lives, two iconic, emblematic men, one of them in the covenant with God. In other words, one of them an Israelite who knows that God has taken the initiative. He cannot yet fully understand that God will not only send prophets and give Scripture, but God will actually send His Son. But the Israelite at least knows that He is loved, that God is faithful. That of his own initiative, God has chosen an insignificant people and made them into a nation because his long-term plan is through that nation so that God gets all the credit. God is going to give a Savior named Jesus Christ. And the wise man, this one of this iconic pair, the wise man knows he's in covenant with God, knows that God is loving and faithful and is walking along with him. But there's another man that the Proverbs typically calls the fool. This psalm will call the wicked, the ungodly, the scoffer. This is a man who is also loved by God, to whom God extends the same kind of opportunities, but does not take God into account. He thinks he knows better. 
And Psalm 1 invites the reader at the beginning of the songbook itself to consider the outcome of two ways of living. In other words, it's an invitation to what you could actually truly call the good life. Not the always successful life, not the life without pain and suffering because such does not exist. And one of the deviations and one of the damages that Bible teachers sometimes do to God's people is they give them a message that sounds like this. You and God would make a great team. And if you would just add some God into your life, everything will be amazing. Your 2.5 kids will prosper. They'll get straight A's. They'll be great athletes. They'll be great whatever you want them to be. It'll just be one promotion and blessing after another. You're going to look amazing and enjoy every minute of it. And then people go out and live life as it actually is and find it filled with fear and anxiety and trouble and pain and begin to wonder if any of this is true. The good life promised by Scripture is not always an easy life, but it is, as Psalm 1 verse 1 says, it is a blessed life. It is a life filled with the best kind of happiness, the kind of happiness that will tell you at the end of your life and as you walk through it that hard as it may be, it's worth it. It offers you a life of wisdom. It offers you a life under God's care, in God's covenant, so that you will not have the painful realization at the end of your life that you've wasted it. And that you've lived for things that do not matter, things that will be snatched away from you by eternity and by the appearance of your own death. Psalm 1 is just six verses, but it portrays these two lives of two choices, two paths that people can choose through life, and this is what it tells us. Blessed is the man, and obviously women are included. This is literary and poetic. It's referring to a person. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. How do you live what is truly a good life? Because there's a lot of competing versions we're being shaped more than ever thanks to the phone, and I'm, going, I'm using my phone, and I'm going to talk to you a great deal about it, and ironically and perhaps hypocritically, I was nearly run over in the parking lot because I was looking at my phone. <laughs> so everything I'm telling you about both Scripture and your smartphone, I'm a fellow struggler, okay? This is not told from the point of view of someone who's arrived, but someone who's on the journey with you. There's a lot of competing versions of what the good life is. Psalm 1 verse 1 says, blessed. It could also be translated happy, and in Hebrew, there's this strange little detail. In Hebrew, this is written in, it's one of the three languages I mentioned, it's in plural. And we would have to make up a word, 
happinesses. Doesn't sound too good. Let's not do that. Here's one way of putting it in English, how very happy, how completely happy. In other words, from God's point of view, from the cosmic point of view, maybe not day to day, maybe not on a Tuesday because tears are actually running down your face, but there's two ways to live and there's a road that goes in one direction and a separate road that goes in the opposite direction. If you stay on the path with God, you will find that you are blessed, you are happy, you are joyful beyond circumstances, you are prospered, and the plural means in more than one way. All of your life will be enveloped, all of your life will be touched by God's blessings because He is the one who made you. These psalms, again, are as different as human beings and as vast as the human experience. Some are bursting with celebration and praise. Some are screaming with pain. Why are they all in the psalms? Because they're all true. And at the center of the psalms and all of those experiences stands an eternal, faithful God who knows the way for you to live because He made you. And He says, blessed is the man, and then it gets really negative, I don't know if you noticed. There's some knots. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's a bunch of don'ts. And somebody says, this is why I don't come to church, because they're always hitting me with the don'ts. And I'm tired of the don'ts. I don't know if you've noticed, don'ts are out of fashion. It's not never really was, but it's especially not popular now to tell anybody that they're wrong, anybody that they're mistaken, that anything is wrong, much less evil. May I suggest to you that life as it actually is, if you're going to have a blessed life, if you're going to have a righteous life, if you're going to have the kind of life that God would bless and approve of and the kind of life you will be proud of, that road will run with both do's and don'ts. You'll have a guardrail on either side of the road. Let me give you, an, for instance, from counseling many years as a pastor in several different churches in two different countries. I'm not telling your story. I don't do that. Okay, never in public. But here's something that often happens. He will say or she will say regarding their beloved, he's an amazing person except when and then they'll say something truly awful, sometimes felonious. <laughs> he's such a good guy when he's not robbing banks. <laughs> I made that one up, but I've actually heard he's a good guy except when he in much worse than bank robbery. May I suggest to you that if you're robbing banks, you're not really a good person so long as you continue to do that? That's why Psalm 1 starts with a negative there are many voices around you portrayed here in these words. There are people around you who are, from God's point of view, in actual daily practical life, wicked and sinners and scoffers. And their voices are loud and they will be telling you, join us. This is the way to live. So the first thing Psalm 1 tells you for a truly blessed life, people who enjoy the God-blessed life, first of all, refuse ungodly advice. They turn deaf ears, they steal their resolve, and they do not listen to the counsel of the wicked. 
They do not stand in the way of sinners. They do not sit in the seat of scoffers. And I'm reading this several times for repetition and to teach you and experience with you one of the habits of Bible study. This is poetry. And poetry never aims to speak directly with scientific precision of life as it actually happens. It tries through images to get you to experience and sometimes discover truths that more clinical and precise language can't describe. This morning, for whatever reason, as I thought about this and remembered one of my seminary professors who taught us, as you read a psalm, try to imagine the music that would go with it. It's a really interesting exercise. I was thinking about happy music, and I don't know where this came from, and I don't know who sings this, but I thought of a song that says, I'm walking on sunshine. Are you familiar? Well, not really, you're not. That's ridiculous. Nobody can walk on sunshine, depending on your theory of physics. We're not even entirely sure what light is, but we are quite sure that you can't walk on it. Now, is that what the guy's trying to say when he says, I'm walking on sunshine? No. He's trying to portray such happiness that he's light and he floats above life and he actually walks on the light that surrounds him. That's what these images are for. So as you read the Psalms, try to picture them. And if the language is provocative and if the verbs are a little bit different, that's purposeful. The psalmist is inviting you in to look over his shoulder and tell you, this is who God is, this is how life is, listen to this wisdom and form your life around it. Now, let's look at the verbs of those first few lines. What do you notice about them? Stands, I'm sorry, walks, stands, and sits. What do you notice? There's a progression, isn't there? Is he going faster or slower? He's slowing down. I don't think the psalmist maybe is trying to portray that these different kinds of people, the wicked, the ungodly, the scoffers, are all different kinds of people, but what is happening to the person who does not listen to God definitely is different. He's slowing down. First, he started walking with people who took no account of God. Then, he stopped walking and he stood with them. Then he got really comfortable there, and he sat. And did you notice where he sat? The seat of who? Scoffers. That's the final stage of hard-heartedness, where the very concept of God is not something that you're even open to. You actually openly scoff and mock the very idea of the God who made you. So, what are you being told in the first lines of Psalms? You were being told to refuse ungodly advice because the longer you listen, the worse you will get. That is the danger of being discipled by people who don't know God. The longer you listen, the longer you're with them, the worse you will get. And the trouble these days is what nearly got me run over, this thing. Have you noticed, those of you who've had a smartphone for over a year, that it's changed you just a little bit? It's changed me. See, my grandmother, my Country born, and red, country born and bred grandma would say things like, ah, he's running with the wrong crowd. There was a time to be influenced by people. You actually had to be with them. 
You actually had to be physically in their presence or at least listening to them on a telephone. There was a time, kids, when there were these other devices, also called telephones, that had hard cables and wires coming in. It was, it was very strange and totally inconvenient because you pretty much had to sit right there tied to the wire to hear the other person. That's no longer true. Every imagination of the human heart, every bit of learning and every bit of wickedness is just a few clicks away through this. We are continually influenced. Things go viral as they say. Someone creates a meme, some little snatch of a song or a little piece of video can race around the world and literally change minds, change philosophies, harden ideas in a moment. And if your primary influence in your life is coming through a screen, you have, even if you've never met them, you have the influence, and you've given your ear to people who God would call wicked and sinners and scoffers. Screens and social media, I'm convinced, are the single most powerful disciple-making force in our culture. It was ironic in the first service, while I held my phone up, just as I did then, my iPhone helpfully gave me my screen time report and told me how many hours I spent on my phone in the last week. It's a real thing. And I'm telling you, I'm a fellow struggler. About a year ago, I was driving down the road, no traffic, no problem, just a normal drive in a nice little car, having a good time and feeling anxious. And I didn't know why. About two miles later, I realized I had put my right hand on my phone on the seat beside me, and I felt better. <laughs> now, why is that? Because people who are likely smarter than any single one of us have put a tremendous amount of thought both into the hardware and the software to keep you using it and to keep you connected. And if you use it wastefully, if you use it constantly, and if you open up through this magical portal to all that the world can ever, has ever said or photographed, you will be discipled. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, when, everyone who, when a person is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. And the screens of America are doing more discipling, more teaching, and more influencing probably than any single human being. So my challenge, my resolution, my consciousness for myself, and my invitation to you is to use those screens as if God were beside you. Because guess what? The God who made you is, but you have to be careful. Look in verse 1 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Here's the fork in the road. Here's the other option. That person has refused ungodly counsel. He has refused the influence of people who do not walk with God but it's not just a don't. There's a very positive step that he's taken in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here's what you're positively being told in Psalm 1. First, you refuse ungodly advice, and in a positive sense, you have to train yourself. You have to cultivate the ability to delight in God's instruction. 
that God is speaking to you. That He has acted in human history not to leave His self-revelation to mere passing human impression. I'm telling you, the phone thing's a real deal, folks. <laughs> it's real. I've interrupted my own preaching with my phone. It was one of the most mortifying things that's ever happened to me in my life. This was in Mexico, and I glared around knowing it was my phone in my pocket, but too embarrassed to admit it. <laughs> Come on, people, because it was just too embarrassing to re reach into my suit pocket and turn the stupid thing off. <laughs> Whoever you are, we're not bothered. We've all been there. But it's real, and it actually illustrates the challenge. His delight, it says, is in what? The law? In other words, with this cacophony of other voices, God has spoken, and He's not bringing His opinion, He is giving law. He's telling you what actually is, and not only what is, He's also telling you what's right. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law, He meditates day and night. So the person who is walking along with God is cultivating two things in it. He is cultivating delight in hearing from God, and he is making a conscious choice, the Bible says, to meditate on his instruction, meditate on his law day and night. And immediately a normal person like you and me will say, I see problems for myself in verse 2 because I don't always delight in the Bible. Can we be honest about our Bible reading? Some of you don't find it a delight, you find it a drudgery, you find it a chore. You set out to read the Bible through last year and you died somewhere in Leviticus and there it sat. <laughs> Anybody been there? Let me give you some helpful ideas. First of all, delight in most things begins with discipline. In other words, it begins with a commitment that because God has spoken and because it's important and you desire the kind of life that He is opening up to you in Psalm 1, and we haven't even gotten to the benefits, you will consciously choose to spend time with Him. And it won't be amazing every single time. And having cultivated that, not legalistic, not drudgery, I'm dragging myself into this, but beginning with the realization that this is a personal relationship, and that's why there's ups and downs, and that's why there are mornings that it delights you and thrills you, and other mornings that it leaves you cold. God never changes, but you're different. You're troubled, you're anxious, you're tired, you're preoccupied, you're thinking about your next to-do list, there's going to be a long series of ups and downs as you try to learn to delight in the Lord, but hearing from God's Word day after day over a lifetime is a whole lot like eating. And that's not my illustration. It comes from Scripture. Jesus being tempted said, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What did he mean? Probably something like this. You can probably tell by looking at me, I don't miss many meals. And yet, for all my eating, there's only probably a dozen, maybe 20 if I really think about it, the thousands of meals I've eaten in my lifetime, there's only a handful that stand out that I remember. 
One of those was some time ago, some dear and very generous friends took us to a restaurant with no prices on the menus. That kind of place. And I was so glad that we were our guests because I saw the menu and I said, my gosh, they don't even want to tell you how much it costs. And the implication is, if you need to know, you can't afford to be here, so you probably better leave right now. Get back in the Corolla and head on home kind of thing. Well, I remember that meal. I treasure it. I understood why it was expensive. I have no idea how much it cost to this day. I don't want to know it would ruin it for me. But I understood why it was so expensive. I was moved by the generosity. I remember that meal, but there are tens of thousands of meals I don't remember. But they've sustained me. They've kept me healthy. They've made me strong. So it is with the Word of God. When you open it with a plan and a purpose, and there's plans and ideas on the back side of the sheet you can look out later, all kinds of journeys through the Word of God, some straight through the Bible, some that will take you deep into deep dives and only portions of the Bible. I'll tell you more about that later. But whatever plan you choose, if you keep showing up, because this is personal relationship, you'll miss and forget a lot of information, but you will experience something better. You will experience transformation. So that's where delight starts. Delight starts with discipline. The second line says, and this is even more puzzling to us 3,000 years later after that was written, it says, on his law, he meditates day and night, and you'll say to yourself, no way, when do I sleep? And I, I can't think about the Bible all day long, can I? I have a job. And you'd be right. Again, it's poetic. Here's the idea. That Hebrew word that we translated meditate literally means to murmur, to recite quietly. It's the idea, if I can take a picture off the farm, of a cow chewing its cud. I know we're in the suburbs, we're on the coast. Does anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> See, cows have this amazing ability of having breakfast, putting it down, feeling snacky a little bit later, and pulling it back up. And if that is news to you, I have really bad news about In-N-Out, folks. Uh, it's... <laughs> What's the cow doing? It's literally chewing it over. What are we doing? We're using our mind to mull, to ponder, to soak in, to think continually from several angles about what this is. It happened to me this morning. I have a very simple idea for you for this year. This year, please, put some, puts these two habits into practice and begin to cultivate them, not as rules for every single day, but something that you're going to cultivate. Please use your Bible before you use your phone or get on a screen. If that sounds really hard, you're probably among the almost now majority of Americans that look at their phone before their feet touch the floor. You see how that would change us? If you looked on social media before you were ever really awake and compared your life with somebody else who has curated their life in such a way to make it look amazing, and you're laying there in unwashed sheets thinking to yourself, I stink. My life is miserable. Here's a better way forward. Before you reach for that screen, before you grab that phone, use your Bible. 
And while you're going through your day, use your Bible, even if you use it on your phone, use your Bible while you're waiting. Because I don't know if you've noticed, we don't know how to wait anymore. If you've had to go to the doctor's office or anywhere where people have to sit together and wait, the one person who's not on their phone is kind of suspicious. <laughs> Might be a terrorist. What's he? You know, he, he should be zombies like the rest of us, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. What would meditation look like? It would look like taking one of those verses and reading it again. It might consist this week of remembering that as a church family, we went through Psalm 1, and you're going to dig back into Psalm 1, and you're going to try to memorize it. And on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, you're just going to work on verse two, 1 and 2. And you're not going to remember, but you've got the Bible on your phone. It's very simple. Don't do it now, but just search Bible in your app store. It'll be right there. Dozens and dozens of translations, some of them will speak to you, so if you don't read that well, you can listen to the Bible as you walk or as you drive. In other words, you're making a conscious and better choice to read, to memorize, or in this case, what I'm recommending is meditation. And the biblical idea, the Hebrew idea of meditating is not emptying the mind, but filling it with one of God's truths, with one of the many things that God has said, and it might be judgment or it might be mercy. It might be celebration or comfort. It might be a warning or a promise and an incentive to change your ways or to keep going the way you are. Truth is, as you go across the Bible, you're going to discover everything because God has spoken to all of it. Here's what happened to me this morning. I tried to take my own advice because I'm occasionally hypocritical, but I try hard not to be. So I thought if I'm going to preach Psalm 1 again for the second time in several years, I should probably cultivate this habit. And I went back, I've been reading the book of James in little pieces for about a week. And I got to James chapter 3, and it said that not many of you should be teachers because you should know that those who teach will be judged more strictly. Well, that set me up straight. And I started thinking about all that that meant. What did that do for me? It warned me. It humbled me. It made me regret that I wasn't better prepared for this moment. It drove me to prayer that my thoughts would come together in the way that would be pleasing to God and helpful to you so that you would get God's idea from Psalm 1. What are we talking about here? We're talking simply about delighting in God's instruction, particularly through meditation. If you're reading the Bible and nothing is happening, it's likely that you've forgotten to meditate. In other words, you're just running your retina across words on a page or a screen and nothing is entering into your soul. What makes the difference? Thinking about it, mulling it over. And I have really good news. You already know how to meditate biblically. You may never have consciously done it, but you're already really, really good at it, I promise you. Here's why. You already know how to worry. Everybody know how to worry? Do you? What does a worry, what does a person who is worrying do? They fixate on that one thought, 
and they think about it over and over and over again. They think about the moment it happened. They thought about how it felt. If they got zinged at work and it made it into a miserable day, they think about the expression on that stupid idiot's face when he said that thing that hurt so bad, and you regret all the things that you could have said in return and how you're going to steer the conversation tomorrow to make sure that you can get it back on the same track so that you can get him back 14 hours later. And dad's sitting in front of the television set and the kids are calling out for him and he's saying, not now, buddy. Daddy's busy and daddy's not busy. He's got the game on, but he doesn't realize his team's already lost. What he's doing is worrying. That's meditation. But it's meditation on fear. It's meditation on harm. It's meditation on anxiety. Replace it with scripture that you find in God's word. Write it down radical idea with a pen and paper because it's simply better. That's what brain science is telling us these days. Reading it on a screen is a neurologically different event than reading and writing on paper and keep in your Bible, if you can, notes of what God shows you. A year from now, you'll have a treasure because you have become the person in verse 2 who had his delight in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Believe it or not, I'm nearly done, even though we're a third of the way through. Because the rest of the psalm, after showing you these two ways to live, the rest of the psalm uses imagery poetically to just tell you how this is going to work out for you. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Get the picture? The person who is continually seeking after God, who is continually thinking God's thoughts after him, who is receiving from God whatever God's word that morning or night or afternoon brings to him, whether it's encouragement or correction or warning, Whatever God brings to him, that person receives it. And day after day, sometimes it's amazing, often it's not, but you continue hearing from God and something amazing happens in you and to you. You become like a drought-proof tree with everything dying around it, but nothing is happening to you because unseen to everyone, your roots go deep and take advantage of the stream of water that is running beside you. You have a drought-proof, fruitful life. The wicked, on the other hand, and it's all farming analogies, verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, what in the world is chaff? If you were horrified by cows chewing their cud, perhaps I should explain what chaff is. Chaff is the itchy, dusty, barely there stuff that gets down the back of your shirt and in your underwear when you walk through the wheat fields. It's pesky, it's kind of dirty, and it's worthless. That's the point of chaff. What are you being told? You're being told to contemplate two ways of living, two outcomes. Number three, the person who has the blessed life trusts God for the outcome. They continue going to God's Word day after day, and they trust Him for the outcome because they discover that the life that God blesses is the one that is nourished by His Word. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In other words, the wicked who were so at ease walking their own way, who stood together for wicked things, who sat together and scoffed God, they won't stand in judgment. They won't be in the congregation of the people that God makes and calls righteous. And here's the promise in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, Psalm 1, in its quiet wisdom in only six verses, tells you that your whole life is being built and lived in the face of oncoming judgment. That the God who made you and loved you so much that He gave you first Scripture and then later His Son will call you to account for the life that He gave you. That's the unfolding beauty of this book. And you read John 5.39, Jesus spoke to people who studied Scripture for a living and He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but it is they that bear witness to me. The trouble people find in Scripture is they don't listen to God and consequently they don't find the life that God has given them first in His Word and ultimately by His Son. And every life beginning with mine is being lived in the face of God's someday for sure and certain judgment. And you don't want to live a life that is sometimes portrayed so vividly in history like Queen Elizabeth I who died centuries ago, but whose life and words are still legendary. She was beautiful and famously childishly vain about her beauty. They say when she died, likely of poisoning, she tottered on her throne with at least an inch of makeup on her face, trying to hang on to beauty that age and death were taking. And historians now doubt the utterance. But it typifies what, how she lived, whether she actually said it with her dying breath or not. She is rumored to have said all of my possessions for a moment of time. See, that's the thing. When the God who made you says that your life has gone on long enough, it's literally over. And there will be times in your life long before you die that many of us will have an opportunity to look back over our life and see that there were hard times and times where we cried out to God, to God with David, where are you? But we will see that through lean times and hard and severe times, God was faithful. And actually, we discover to our great amazement that having spent so much time with God, we have become more like Him. We have been the object and the point of His promises, and we will have a life that is drought-proof, that nourishes other people, even as we are nourished by God Himself. So on this first Sunday of the year, because you've been given life and health and desire enough to do what so many people didn't do across the world, you came to hear from God's Word and Scripture from a clod like me, and that's how we get the blessing and God gets the credit. He takes ordinary people like you and me and He brings us close and He says, listen, I gave you life. I know the way forward. Learn from me. Be changed by me. You have an opportunity this year to walk and have a life that God would call blessed and happy in every way. Let's pray. Can I give you just a moment to yourself and tell you again about Jesus?
these psalms, these prophecies, they all pointed forward to Him. Jesus is truly the only person on earth, the only human being who never listened to the wicked, who never sat down with the scoffers, whose life truly was prosperous and blessed at every moment, even as they killed Him, because He was doing it for my sins and yours. If you don't have that assurance of Jesus, can I invite you to turn to Him humbly and confess yourself in need of Him? Tell Him that you've sinned. Ask Him to save. And if you have that assurance, if you know you have that relationship, don't be discouraged by the ups and downs. Press forward. Go back. Open the book up again. Say to Him, as I did this morning, God, with all my faults and all the false starts, all the indifference, all the hypocrisy, here I am again. Speak to me. Change me day after day. Sometimes there'll be mountaintops and the light will break through the clouds. Other times it'll just be ordinary, but it'll sustain you and nourish you. And if God gives us the pleasure of meeting again a year from now, you'll be amazed by what He's done because He meant it when He said that you would be blessed. So if you need Jesus, call out to Him. Ask Him to save you. If you already have Him, tell Him that this year you'll nourish yourself in His Word. Father, receive this final song of praise. Thank you for the amazing generosity of people who love you. Thank you for the way we close the year, Lord, with such generosity toward missions, missionaries. Receive this offering, Lord, along with this song. We owe you our life. We can't repay you, but we do want to love you and obey you and show you through giving that we trust you with this, our finances, your provision. So receive our worship, receive our confession. If there's someone, Lord, here who needs to trust Jesus, I pray that they would reach out to him and turn their lives over to you, Lord Jesus, right now, please. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.